On October 3rd, 1993, Walter Gowdy threw a party at his Indianapolis home. His half-brother, Romeo Lee, and their shorter friend, Kaidi Harvell, drove one of Walter's cars to an after-hours club in Anderson, Indiana. After an altercation outside, Romeo approached a car on the passenger side, and Kaidi was on the driver's side. The driver was fatally shot, and a passenger was wounded. Witnesses described the driver's side shooter as shorter than the other. Months later, Walter Gowdy was at the same after-hours club in the same car and picked up by Detective Rodney Cummings, who put him into a one-man show-up where Walter was mistaken for the passenger-side shooter, his half-brother Romeo. Despite 16 alibi witnesses, Walter was charged with the murder. But between Walter's overly suggestive ID and his strong alibi, the charges were dropped, which did not sit well with Detective Cummings. When Kaidi Harvell was later ID'd in a live lineup by three witnesses as the driver's side shooter, he told Cummings that Walter was the driver's side shooter, not him, while placing Romeo on the passenger side. Detective Cummings ran for district attorney, won, and reindicted Walter. Despite Romeo's confession, naming Kaidi and himself, the state still forged ahead with a prosecution based on conflicting witnesses. Almost all misidentified Walter as his half-brother on the passenger side, except Kaidi, who placed Walter in his place on the driver's side. Walter was sentenced to 110 years in prison. This is Wrongful Conviction. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode... This is almost like the cartoon of the ping pong match where your head keeps going back and forth. And you're like, wait, what? Huh? What? Like, you just not going to believe the way this case unfolded and how the system, I'm going to be generous and say made mistake after mistake and then compounded their mistakes. And then even when the mistakes were corrected, they made sure to correct the correction to make sure the mistakes. I mean, it's... I. I'm at a loss for words on this one, I got to tell you. But we're here with the man who survived this ordeal, Walter Gowdy. Walter, I'm so sorry you're here because of why you're here, but I'm really honored that you're here to tell your story. Appreciate it. Very much so. Appreciate it. And with him is his civil attorney, Richard Dvorak. Richard, it's your first time on the show, and I certainly hope it's not your last. And I know you've done great work on this case in particular, and I'm really, really delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. So... 
This is an Indiana story, which we're hearing more and more about lately as more wrongful convictions and prosecutorial misconduct and police corruption are being recognized, not only in Indiana, but all over the country. But before we get into how that affects your case, Walter, I want to go back to before all of that happened. Now, you were born in Chicago, but you grew up out west. Is that right? Okay. I grew up in Los Angeles, myself and my three siblings. My mom's up and moved, moved away from my father's. But um, I grew up in Los Angeles during the, the heyday of the gang banging and the drugs. You know what I mean? That's all we had to do to, to get by. You mentioned your siblings. Now, two of them, Lamont and Romeo, were deeply affected by this incident. Romeo, of course, was directly involved. Can you tell us about him? Never smoked a drink, none in his life. He prided himself on that. He's a real cool guy. He's really loyal. But he gets angry really quick. Romeo is the one that you go get when it's drama. Is they want to fight out here, we're going to get Romeo. Growing up, we both took martial arts. We both took boxing. We both started gang banging out there. No father figure. Our male figures consist of the older guys in the streets. We didn't have the people that tells you, you could be somebody. And the guys doing well out there were selling drugs. Exactly. Exactly. We see the guy with the big Cadillac. Uh, he always got the money. He got the jury. He got the girls flocked here. We want to be like that. Me being the oldest, I felt incumbent upon me to get out there and make something for my siblings. You know what I mean? And I started selling drugs really young, like 13 years old. So how I get a hold to Indiana, I say when I turned like 21, a friend of mine was out there telling me uh, how much the drugs was going for. You know, So I came out there and visited and found out, yeah, yeah, they're more expensive in Indiana than they are in California. So you saw this as an opportunity and started taking the risk. And, you know, there was a lot of risk, let's face it, of transporting the drugs from California to Indiana in order to reap the reward of a higher profit margin. And despite a few arrests, including one in St. Louis for marijuana possession that had an effect, as it turns out on this case, the risk had paid off, at least temporarily. You made a lot of money, owned a home, had multiple cars, and were investing in legitimate businesses. You had your own nightclub. But before we go any further, can you tell us a little bit about this one character who you met in Indiana with the interesting name, Kaidi Harvell? I only had new Kaidi like five months before this all this happened. Kaidi is, okay, Lorna Smith, which was my girlfriend at the time, her brother was locked up and her brother's best friend was Kaidi Harvell. Me and her brother became real cool, like my brother-in-law. He let me know one day, man, my guy going to get out, man. I want you to look out for him. Kaidi got out. I'll take him shopping. I'll take him on my, under my wing. Started letting him hang with me all the time. You know, we become best friends. I felt that he really was a genuine guy. I mean, I just did. I don't know. I don't know how I got so to see. And that's what really the problem my brother got with me now because my brother didn't even know him. My brother just called himself having his back because he's my guy. So now he finds himself in prison with 110 years now for trying to help my guy who turned out to be a, a scumbag, you know what I mean, for lack of a better term. Right. I'm sure you probably feel some you know, degree of guilt for even putting those two together. But your brother did what he did, and at least he came forward instead of lying about you like Kaidi did. Now, there's one more thing to cover, which bears heavily on this case. Kaidi is about 5'8", and looks nothing like you and Romeo, who are both over six feet tall. And let's face it, you share a mother, your family. You guys look similar. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We get a lot, even to this day, because we both bald now, so we really get it now. And this is important because it really gums up the identification process in this case. Because you have people identifying you in your brother Romeo's role on the passenger side of the car. And then Kaidi and perhaps the police tried to create and capitalize on some confusion around there being two shooters, one short, one tall, on which side of a car. So let's get to that. The night of October 3rd, 1993, you were hosting a party at your home in Indianapolis. Now, tell us how the rest of the night played out. And Richard, feel free to jump in whenever you want. So October 3rd, I threw a party in Indianapolis. Nice party, big party. A lot of weed, smoking, drinking, hanging, partying. Not a normal house party. During the party, my brother and Harvell, they left and went to a club Anderson, which is like 30, 45 minutes. They go to Anderson, Indiana. An altercation occurred outside the club. I later found out. They was in one of my cars. At the time, I had like six cars. I'm really in the cars. The altercation occurred with Kaidi and the victim, Ms. McLeod. A shooting occurred, and Romeo assisted in the shooting. It had nothing to do with the carjacking. That's the story Kaidi made up. 
I later found out through my brother. And again, again, I had several cars and I wouldn't need to, you know, be involved in nothing like that. But they had this incident. They agreed not to tell me about it because I'll be upset. I knew absolutely nothing about this case. So there was a shooting at a club called the Oasis in Anderson, Indiana. There were two shooters ran up on a car that was parked in, in, in the parking lot outside of the Oasis. And one shooter was a shorter person, and he was up on the driver's side. And there was a taller suspect on the passenger side. The occupants of the vehicle were a Marvin McLeod, who was in the driver's seat, Damon Nunn, who was in the passenger seat, and then Jill Barkley, who was in the back seat. So Mr. McLeod, unfortunately and tragically, was shot and, and, and died. And Mr. Nunn was shot, but he survived and ended up being a witness in this case. So there was no suspect originally. This went on for several months with no suspect. There was some heat from the NAACP and other organizations, and uh, there was some pressure to solve the case. So fast forward to February of 1994, Walter was actually at the Oasis. And there was someone, an employee of Oasis, who said, oh, that person you know, looks familiar. They thought that maybe he might have been one of the people involved. Now, that person never testified at trial, never identified him or anything. They just That's what got their attention. And obviously, it'd be pretty logical to show up at the place where you did the shooting. In the same car, no less. Yeah, in the same car. In the same car. So I'm there playing pool, and here comes two officers. Asked me to see some ID. He asked me to step outside. He said I was identified as being someone who was involved in a shooting in October. Would you be willing to come down to the station for a lineup? So at this point, we've already established that you knew nothing about this crime, but you did something that later really seemed to get under the skin of Detective Rodney Cummings. You gave him an alias, James Benneman, in order to avoid the warrant that I mentioned earlier out of St. Louis for marijuana possession. So continue. You go down to the station for this lineup, right? I go to the station. They put me in a room by myself. It was a one-way mirror glass. He come back in there. He tells me I was identified. Impossible. Impossible. They don't, I'm not arrested, but they put me in a jail suit like 45 minutes later. This time they put me in a full lineup with five people this time. Me and five people. Because the witness knew four of the other people that was in the lineup. The people that was identifying. It's in the poor reports. So the second lineup was basically pointless. It's almost as suggestive as the one-man show-up, if that's even possible. So nonetheless... The witness from the backseat, Jill Barkley, identified you as the taller passenger side shooter, which kind of makes sense since you look like your own half-brother. But then you were released. Maybe they kind of knew that their lineup was overly suggestive. I don't know. I mean, why were you released at that time? That caught with me still being adamant that it wasn't me, willing to submit to a, a polygraph. I gave them all cell phone numbers. I gave him my pager numbers. I gave him my address to where I'm located at, all that. So he told me he was willing to let me go. This on a Friday. He's willing to let me go, come back Monday when he gets some more uh, witnesses that he can put me in more lineups. Had me agree to come back Monday. When I agreed, I agreed. But however, I gave you an alias name because I had a warrant. I'm out of St. Louis. I had marijuana on the highway. So I gave him a fake name. Had they ran my prints, I wasn't going nowhere. So by Monday, you knew who I was because you went on a random prints. You knew I was. Nah, you know I had to warrant. Yeah, you're not who you say you were. So Monday I call him. I say, I ain't got transportation. Can you come pick me up? Oh, don't worry about it. We'll be in touch. Tuesday they came, kicked the door into my girlfriend's house, arrested me, did another lineup. They try to do a, an official lineup and they do a second lineup. This this one didn't involve people that she knew. But by, by that time, the it, it's ridiculous because she obviously knows who's, who, who she picked out originally. And then they proceed to charge Walter with the murder. But Walter was at a party in Indianapolis and he had 16 alibi witnesses. And you had, let's face it, you had no clue about what happened in Anderson. But your brother, who was locked up in Arizona on an unrelated charge, had found out that you were now in jail for a murder in which he played a role. And he eventually officially confessed before you went to trial. Unfortunately, that confession was never heard by your jury. But could you tell us about when you first found out about your brother's involvement? When I first got locked up, I was in there maybe two weeks. No idea why I'm here. This sounds crazy. I know I haven't done that much wrong in the world. I know I've done a few things, but... <laughs> so, Romeo calls my girlfriend. 
uh, my daughter's mother. When she told him I was locked up for murder, he like, for murder? Like, yeah, they say he shot somebody in Anderson. He like, oh. he recognized, like, he explained to my lawyer everything happened. My lawyer comes to visit me. Big old smile on his face. I know why they think it's you. I said, what? It was your brother in Harvell. I said, my brother's in Arizona, locked up. I know. I've been on the phone with him all morning. Okay, so this is in maybe March of 1994, but he doesn't officially come forward until December 95, which is after you were reindicted and about to go to trial. And let's be clear, Romeo gave that confession against his own self-interest. He ended up with a 110-year sentence. So, I mean, talk about going against your own self-interest. But it finally made sense of your misidentification because, like we said, you two are half-brothers and you do look alike. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. At this point, all you officially had in your defense, which was enough to drop the charges, was 16 alibi witnesses placing you in Indianapolis, the fact that your identification was overly suggestive, and then Jill Barkley, the backseat passenger witness, had spotted Kaidi Harvell in Indianapolis and reported it. According to reports, Kaidi was in a value city one day in Indianapolis, and the chick that was in the back seat of the car when the shooting happened, Sini, they locked eyes on each other. And she watched him as he walked out. And she like, that's the guy. So this is in her in the report. She mentioned that because when they gave him a lineup, she like, that's the guy right there I seen in Value City. That's him. That's the shooter. That's the shooter that was on the driver's side of the car. Right. So Jill Barkley's identification of Kaidi happened in March of 94, along with two other witnesses, Jackie Barclay and Latanya Young. Latanya had at one point ID'd Walter as a driver's side shooter, but in March of 94, she was positive it was Kaidi. So maybe LaTanya impeaches herself, but Jackie and Jill have been pretty consistent. So this likely played heavily into your charges being dropped by the prosecutor at the time, Bill Lawler. So then you were extradited to St. Louis for the marijuana possession warrant. Rodney Cummings and his partner, Steve Napier, they did not agree with this decision to drop the charges. He wasn't willing to let it go. He didn't want to let it go. And to him, to this day, he think I got away. To him, I got away with murder. I don't know how I got away. I just did 16 and a half years for one, but for two, I had nothing to do with it at all. His beef with me was that I deceived him with the name. He felt that I played him. That's his word. That's his word to use. He said, you played me. But fake name or not, the prosecutor was simply following the evidence, not some personal vendetta. He was doing his job, in other words. So while Cummings continued to investigate the case, Walter remained on his mind. Now, Despite this positive ID, Kaidi didn't get picked up until June of 94 on an unrelated burglary charge. And in an interview that was not even discovered until civil litigation, Kaidi denied being involved and gave a bogus alibi. Now, perhaps after looking into that, Cummings brought Kaidi in for a videotaped live lineup in September 94. And once again, he was positively ID'd as the driver's side shooter by the three witnesses. Now, Kaidi decided to save himself, and despite the conflict between Walter's height and that of the driver's side shooter's description, Kaidi Harvell, who stood only 5'8", said that it wasn't him who was the shorter driver's side shooter, but it was Walter, who is not 5'8", but again, over six feet tall. Hard to make that mistake. And snitched on Romeo as the taller shooter on the passenger side. But now, with this statement and your charges being dropped, there was a dynamic created between the then-prosecutor Bill Lawler and Detective Cummings. And Rodney Cummings happened to be a lawyer. He had gone to night school while he was a police officer to become a lawyer, and he took it upon himself to run for the prosecutor's office. It's election season. It's the fall of 94. And lo and behold, he wins. Detective Cummings now becomes Prosecutor Cummings. And what does Prosecutor Cummings do? He turns around and and re-indicts Walter for the charges that the prior prosecutor dismissed. So now we have the detective becoming the prosecutor to prosecute a case where he was once the detective. The Pacers Foundation is a proud supporter of this episode of Wrongful Conviction and of the Last Mile organization, which provides business and tech training to help incarcerated individuals successfully and permanently re-enter the workforce. 
The Pacers Foundation is committed to improving the lives of Hoosiers across Indiana, supporting organizations that are dedicated primarily to helping young people and students. For more information on the work of the Pacers Foundation or the Last Mile program, visit PacersFoundation.org or TheLastMile.org. When Cummings re-indicts Walter, it's on the theory that the two shooters are Walter and his brother Romeo Lee, and Kaide was a witness to all this. Part of the problem, though, is that these state witnesses, some of whom identified Walter as one of the possible shooters, had identified Kaide Harvell as the shooter. And that was something that would have completely messed up that theory. So what happens is they go to trial, And Mark Maynard, the original trial attorney, suspected that he was not being given all of the police reports. And he did a motion to get the police reports and a second motion to reconsider, a motion for in-camera inspection of the prosecutor's file to see if there were some police reports that he wasn't getting. Well, the judge denied it. And Walter went to trial without knowing that the state's witnesses had identified Kaidia Harvell, another state's witness, as one of the shooters. But what further makes it absolutely impossible that Walter was was one of the shooters was the fact that during this prosecution, before he went to trial, Romeo, his half-brother, finally came forward and admitted that he was the second shooter, that he and Kaide did the shooting. So we have our two shooters. Now, that makes all the sense in the world because the physical descriptions in this case were that a shorter gentleman was on the driver's side and a taller gentleman was on the passenger side. Well, Walter and Romeo are both tall, and they look alike. Kaidi Harvell is short. So rather than go on what was the truth, and the truth is that Romeo Lee did the shooting on the passenger side, and Kaidi did the shooting on the driver's side. Instead, the theory at Walter's trial was that Walter did it with Romeo, and Kaidi was just a witness. Yeah, this one came with instructions, right? So you have this shooter, uh, Romeo, admitting, which is highly unusual, before the trial, uh, before Walter's trial, that he did it. And he not only said that Kaidi was the other shooter, but that Walter wasn't there. He's a guy with firsthand knowledge and a lot and everything to lose, right? And unfortunately, the jury never heard the Romeo Lee confession because Maynard couldn't figure out how to get it into evidence. The confession never came in. So one of the single most important pieces of evidence in this whole freaking case, which was later used to convict Romeo, the jury never even heard it. It's insane. Let's face it. And in case this wasn't enough, the idea that this judge didn't feel that there was any need for the defense to see the evidence from the police files. Richard, uh, help me out. Well, this is another unique thing about this case, unique to Indiana. Under Indiana law, the Indiana Supreme Court actually ruled this, and it still exists today. Police reports are considered work product, okay? and they do not have to be tendered by the state to the defense. Now, you have to ask, well, they still have to comply with the United States Constitution. They have to comply with Brady. So how do they, how do, they do that? Well, I, I took several depositions in this case as part of the civil matter, and I asked several prosecutors, and none of them had a good answer for how that happens. I mean, how do you tender exculpatory material that's in a police report without tendering the police report? So that's another aspect of all this, is that they were withheld under the fig leaf that this was work product, which actually had some sort of legal fig leaf to cover it. Now, what's interesting is that we know from later on that the withheld evidence was the viewing of the witnesses of Harvell as the other shooter. So this was a videotape. Well, under Indiana law, a videotape cannot be considered work product, but police reports can. So the police reports that were exculpatory were tendered to the prosecutors. They weren't Cummings because Cummings had to uh, recuse himself, but the trial prosecutors had the police reports. They had the exculpatory evidence. But they didn't have the videotape. And why was that? Well, because back in election season in September of 94, before Walter was reindicted, Cummings took the videotape out of evidence, signed it out of evidence, and it was returned back to the police locker back in 1995. And, and guess what the date was 
that that was returned back into the evidence locker. It was the exact same afternoon that the judge denied the in-camera inspection of the file. (laughs) The prosecutors would not have had the fig leaf of not giving over the lineup video, but they did have the fig leaf of not giving over the police reports. So under this work product rule, they were covered from sharing their police reports about Kaidi being identified as the driver's side shooter. But the videotape of that identification procedure, which would fall under non-work product evidence, was technically not hidden because Cummings, who had recused himself, had taken it out of the evidence locker. So now two of the most important critical pieces of evidence in this case that point to who actually committed this crime were out of play. So Walter was charged with the murder as well as attempted carjacking and robbery. You know, those other two charges related to the motive that Kaidi Harvell had invented, a motive that made no sense considering that Walter (laughs) owned six or seven cars already and had more than enough money to buy whatever he wanted. Now, David Puckett and Paula Maris Roberts were the prosecutors in this case, and Walter was represented by Mark Maynard. So I'm almost afraid to ask, what happened at the trial? At the trial, the state presented the eyewitness testimony. So the incredibly suggestive eyewitness identification came in against Walter. Kaide testified against Walter. And unfortunately, the jury never heard the Romeo Lee confession, even though he came forward a couple months before the trial. Cummings indicted Romeo for the murder. But that happened right before Walter's trial. And when they tried to call Romeo as a witness, he took the fifth. And the confession never came in evidence. Now, that would have been incredibly helpful to Walter as well for the jury to know that his brother, who looks like him, and everyone said looks like him, confessed to doing it with Kaide, the state's witness. And of course, at trial, the jury also didn't know that Kaide Harvell had been identified by the other state's witnesses as one of the shooters. So the jury heard Kaide identify Walter as the driver's side shooter and Romeo as the passenger side shooter. But then the rest of the state's witnesses identified Walter as the passenger side shooter because he looks like Romeo. And it's never pointed out to the jury that Kaide was identified as the driver's side shooter because the prosecution kept that to themselves. It's too bad the evidence that would have exposed the lies and made it all make sense. All of it was either hidden or not admitted as evidence. Now, now something happened outside of the trial that I need to mention here. Walter's brother, Lamont, who we haven't really talked about, on October 3rd, he was at the party, and Kaidi pulled him into the situation in his statement to Cummings. So as soon as Lamont landed to testify on Walter's behalf, Lamont was arrested. He never had to testify against Walter, but he was coerced into a plea bargain corroborating Kaidi's statement. So this was not part of trial, but it kept his alibi testimony out of trial. What about the other alibi witnesses? So Walter presented several alibi witnesses, you know, but this is not something where, you know, he's on on video, but he was at a party with, you know, friends. And one of the witnesses, they did sort of trip her up in that she testified she took a, a flight and she was confused about which airline she took and There was some impeachment about that. One of the other reasons why I believe that Walter was convicted and why they didn't believe the alibi was because uh, one of the alibi witnesses, a woman by the name of Linda Phelps, you know, happened to be friends with with Kaidi Harvell. And before trial, she came off of her statement that Walter was at, at this party, which undercut, you know, his alibi defense. Well, the problem is there was a police report that was withheld from evidence that indicated that before she flipped, Kaide had a conversation with her, which then miraculously, then she comes off of her alibi. So really anything like that, that can sort of chip away at an alibi when you're staring at five eyewitnesses, you know, and no, no confession that was introduced, no evidence that the eyewitnesses were identifying the other state's witness, Kaide Arvell, and it's hard for a jury to overcome that. Ultimately... Walter was convicted by the jury of murder, attempted murder, attempted carjacking, and attempted robbery on December 21st, 1995. Sentenced about a month later on January 17th, 1996 to 110 years in prison. So a life sentence. Yeah, that was, wow. Jeez. Let's go to the verdict first. Then we go to sentencing because both of them was really painful. So they find me guilty. I'm, I'm, I'm livid to say the least. I'm, 
very perplexed about not only all the money I spent in it, not only the fact that you're innocent, you know, it's the, it's the fact that like, where is the justice? Sentencing was like 30 days later. Sentencing came up. I didn't go. You just found me guilty for somebody I didn't do. I don't want to hear nothing else the court got to say. So he sent my lawyer to the jail. He said, I need you to be in court before I can make this motion. Motion to dismiss the verdict and a motion for the judge to step aside. After that, if you decide to leave, fine. Just let the judge know you want to leave. So, okay, I agree to that. I go over there. I walk in. The judge makes it a little... Before I impose sentencing, is there anything you'd like to say, Mr. Gowdy? Yes, I would, Your Honor. I would like to let you, the court, that prosecutor right there, my lawyer, my private investigator, everybody here know I'm not guilty of this crime. I said, I don't care. It doesn't matter how much time you give me. I'm going to spend every day of it prove my innocence. I said, this time, I don't want to hear the verdict. I like to go back to my cell. Whatever time you're going to give me, you're going to give me. I don't care if you gave me 60 or if you gave me 110. I'm not good for none of it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse With family, cannolis and spins mean everything Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business Introducing The Godfather at chumpacasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. In 16 years of being in prison, 16 and a half years, for me, he lived the lifestyle that I lived and all that. I didn't have not one fight. In 16 and a half years in there. Not one. Or, my beef was not with no inmate. My beef was with the system. I did my whole time law libraries, uh, digging and researching cases. Man, law library was my second home. I didn't get into the prison politics and the things that going on in prison with the games and the playing cards and the shooting dice and the smoking cigarettes. And all, nah. But when they stopped smoking cigarettes in there, they gave us a heads up that they was going to quit in 98. In August, they told us, January 1st, no more cigarettes in Mississippi City Prison, 98. When they cut out the cigarettes, I saw the opportunity. Now we got the black market. What I do, I take a whole bunch of cartons and stash them. 
I dig holes everywhere. I had holes dug all around the prison. Boy, I had holes. I had. I used to work in the kitchen. I had it. I had cartons all in the ceiling, up in the. Oh man, I stashed all the way to January. And look, I didn't break them out in January. I didn't break them out to like April or May. But when I broke them out, woo! You talk about hundred dollars a pack of cigarettes. You talk five for one cigarette. They take the one cigarette down and break it down in five cigarettes, two dollars a piece. So that's what that's really why I got the bulk of my money for my attorney fees. I paid for like four attorneys in there. But the bulk of my attorney fees came from tobacco sales. I ain't gonna lie to you. Tobacco sales. So tobacco sales made up the Walter Gowdy Defense Fund. But you also did a lot of your appeals on your own, pro se. And it's crazy, though not unbelievable in our system, but still crazy, that with how all of the evidence had come out during your brother's trial. Even then, it still took another 16 years. The Romeo Lee trial was the unraveling of Walter's conviction, ultimately, although it took a long time. The state put on uh, a case against Romeo Lee, heavily reliant on his confession. And remember, that confession was that Kaide and Romeo did the, did the shooting. But, you know, they, they presented the same evidence that they presented against Walter. And that's with the eyewitnesses putting Walter as the passenger side shooter, even though Romeo's confession was that he was on the passenger side. So there was some something for him to argue, at least, at that trial. But it was during that trial that during the cross-examination of Steve Napier, they learned that Kaidi Harvell was identified by these state's witnesses as the other shooter. So it wasn't enough to, you know, cause a not guilty in Romeo's trial, but the attorney for Romeo Lee did give that evidence to Mark Maynard. I should also note that the lineups not only consisted of three of the state's witnesses identifying Kaide Harvell as the shooter, but Damon Nunn, who was the attempt murder victim and was an eyewitness who identified Walter as one of the shooters, um, when he was shown the lineups with Kaide Harvell, he identified a filler in that lineup as one of the shooters. So obviously that's going to destroy Nunn's credibility or reliability as well when he identifies a, a filler as one of the shooters. Romeo's lawyer recovered his evidence and turned it over to she Rest in peace uh, to Sharon Clark, matter of fact. She didn't have to do that because she had been watching my whole trial. Her and my lawyers were really cool. So she knew very much about the case. So she's like, wait a minute, Mark never had this. This is going to help Mr. Gowdy. So now Romeo Lee's attorney gives Mark Maynard these withheld police reports. Uh, Mark Maynard had been representing Walter on direct appeal as well. He tried to get this into the record on direct appeal. That didn't work. My lawyer, he sends it to the Supreme Court and try to amend my appeal. Now, mind you, in the appeal, he alleged that the prosecutor withheld exculpatory evidence. He alleged this without having the proof. Now he got the proof. Mind you, when he first got the proof, he sat on him for two weeks because he was dealing with his father's death. So he wasn't doing nothing. Yeah, and I, I understood that. You know, he had to deal with his father's death and all that. So here goes our time. Now when you send it up to the courts, as you send that up, the decision's coming down already. Denied. And in the decision, you deny it because you said that he's alleging that this happened, but he had no proof of it. But the proof is on your desk now. But you already denied it. The court said, no, you're going to have to oppose conviction. So Walter is is left alone here. He has to file a pro se post-conviction petition saying that these Brady materials should give him a new trial. And he was appointed new counsel, public defender named Sharon Fay. Now, you would think that when the original judge would hear about all those shenanigans, Walter would have been immediately given a new trial and never prosecuted again. But no, it took six years and an evidentiary hearing before the judge finally denied the post-conviction petition. And then you would think an appellate court would step in and say, well, that's wrong. That didn't happen. Indiana Supreme Court denied. We'll go to federal court. Federal courts have to take this seriously, right? Nope. Pro se, federal habeas corpus petition denied. If you don't have a degree, they don't honor nobody like you or me just coming there and just know all the law. To them, like, it's a slap in the face for ones that went to school all them years, bust their butt to get the degree. And you're going to come here reciting all the same thing they know. They ain't going to honor it. You know, as one of our guest hosts, Patrick Persley, likes to say, pro se gets no play. They will rarely, not never, but rarely ever give you the time of day if you don't have a lawyer. So how does this turn around? What happened next? 
his last shot is his pro se attempt to get this overturned in the Seventh Circuit. And thankfully, the Seventh Circuit appointed him counsel from a, a big law firm. And this attorney was able to convince the Seventh Circuit that he received an unfair trial and the Seventh Circuit reversed his conviction after Walter did about 16 years wrongfully in prison. It never ceases to amaze me that a defendant can present such clear Brady violations, exculpatory materials that completely destroy the state's case at trial and prove their claims of actual innocence, along with ineffective assistance of counsel claims. I mean, Mark Maynard even told Walter to pursue that claim since he was, in fact, ineffective at getting that confession and the identifications of Kaidi as the driver's side shooter into court. So with that evidence, no reasonable juror would have convicted Walter. Yet every court along the way bent over backwards, fell over themselves to ignore this wrongful conviction in favor of, I can only guess here, the finality of judgment and the sacrosanct jury verdict, not to mention covering for their colleagues in the prosecutor's office. And in fact, Cummings is currently seeking a seventh term and running unopposed in 2022. I don't know what can be done about that, but it really is sickening. So 16 years it took for a court to finally accept the evidence that they used to convict his brother Romeo in another trial that was shortly after his own. It's just disgusting. Let's face it. There's no other word for it. But this ruling came down in May 2010, and your lawyer at that time was Andrew Caritas. Remember, Richard is Walter's civil attorney. But Walter, tell us, what do you remember about that moment when you got the news? Oh, this is one of the best days of my life right here. I get a uh, legal mail. May 5th, 2010. Order come down, la la la, boo, boo, boo. You got 120 days to give him a new trial or release him. Now I think I'm finna go home any day. But they still playing hardball. I'm in there, honey. I mean, I'm counting down days every day. Every day I'm waking up thinking they finna call my name. Cause any day now I'm thinking they finna say, you know what? Let him go. On the 120th day, I gotta be going home this morning. I went and gave my phone to my neighbor. I gave all my, all my commissary away. I done gave everything. 120, this 120th day. I ain't in trial. I asked my neighbor back for my, let me see my phone right quick. Call my lawyer. He said, be patient. I'm working on my, my talks with him right now. They refiled the charges. They said they're going to take you to trial. He said he talked to the prosecutor and asked the prosecutor, what did you see in this case that you said? I didn't see nothing. That's the problem. They just handed me the case and I didn't want to just drop it. So the Madison County prosecutor was Rodney Cummings. When this thing was reversed and sent back to the lower court for a new trial, the judge, you know, ordered that a new prosecutor's office should, should look at it. And so an independent prosecutor named Barry Brown from a different county looked at this. And he was the one who finally decided to drop the charges. And I will say that Rodney Cummings was quoted as saying at the time that Mr. Brown didn't have the guts to retry Walter. Whoa, the guts, right? After the... <laughs> I don't even know how to dignify that with words. After the evidence that they had at the time of trial completely shredded this guy's theory, he's still holding on to it almost three decades later. You know, if it's not too late, I, I really wish somebody would run against him. You could hit him over the head with his own words all the way into the prosecutor's office this fall, but we're running out of time. The citizens of Madison County really do deserve better. Walter certainly did. So Brown dismissed the charges in January 2012. I remember January 13th, 2012. Like I remember like it was yesterday. I got that phone call from Richard. Let me know. All charges dismissed. We ready to go with the lawsuit. And he filed my lawsuit the very next day. He had already been prepared for the lawsuit because he was the one lawyer that was willing to take my case without it being all the way resolved. He believed in the case. So thanks to Richard, the civil suit was filed immediately. But of course, these things are rarely resolved immediately. At the time, Indiana didn't even have a compensation statute. Now, now they do. And there's something not so good about it because it forces innocent men and women to waive their right to civil litigation if they accept the compensation. To me, this just adds insult to injury. And I hope that it's corrected soon, along with that ridiculous work product rule, which we should just call call it legalized or legitimized Brady violations. I believe there's movement on both sides of those issues and we fully support that. So as far as Walter's civil suit is concerned, the U.S. District Court denied it. But in May 2019, the Seventh Circuit stepped up again and reinstated the lawsuit. So in April 2020, Walter settled his lawsuit. But 
let's face it, there's no amount of money that would ever make up for the lost time with loved ones. First, I want to say, I think it's very unfair that these prosecutors uh, and detectives are able to pull something like this off and get away with just giving a, a little bit of money and it's over with. You know what I mean? Like, you took years. Like my, I, I went in prison a new father. My oldest was number three years old. I came out of grandfather. I can't get them, day, them years back. I don't care how much money you give me, I can't get them back. Kids, graduations, their birthdays. I can't, I, didn't get, I can't get that back. To, it actually destroyed my ability to be a really effective father. Their minds are made up already in life of what life means to them. I don't even know what to say. I mean, I can only imagine through the lens of my relationship with my own kids, and it just breaks my heart. What about your brothers? I mean, Romeo is still inside. I'm sure you'll probably take this opportunity to visit him. But what about Lamont, the brother that they coerced into a plea that corroborated Kaidi's statement? Do, do you think you'd be able to put that behind you and reconnect? Listen, Lamont flew in to testify for me and they arrested him on the spot and said that Kaidi said he was involved and just had a charge on him. He sat in the jail. When they found me guilty, and I'm the one with the money now, so he don't have a lawyer and he don't have no money. He didn't want to take that chance. They gave him plea bargain of five years probation to say that what Kaidi said was correct, that he was there and he watched it. He didn't have to testify to this because I already convicted. I'm already gone. Matter of fact, nobody in the family has seen or heard from him since then because they was all pissed off at him for doing that. Like, why would you do that? It's almost like you corroborating Kaidi's story. But I understood his part. I haven't been able to talk to him and let him know, dude, listen, I'm not mad at you. I understood. I, that's a big chance to take right there. And he took the plea bargain. And he, since nobody in the family seen him, we don't know where he at. Again, I was just reaching out to just let him know I wouldn't matter. But I just gave up on reaching out because I didn't want him to think I was reaching out trying to look for you or nothing. You know what I mean? Like, it ain't, it ain't that serious. I'm just happy to be home. Wow. So Lamont, or if anyone knows Lamont, please let him know. Make the most out of the time you both have left. We're going to have Walter Social's linked in the bio. Reach out to him. Walter also has a podcast that we'll link to. And with that, we're going to go to closing arguments. This is, of course, the part of the show where I thank you both for joining us and sharing your story. And now I'm going to turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair, and just listen to anything you feel is left to be said. Richard, let's start with you. And Walter, take us on home. So there's been a lot of talk about you know Rodney Cummings, and people may have the impression that, well... This is sort of a, a one bad apple situation. But the, the real problem here is that time and again, there were numerous people involved in the, in the judicial system who could have stopped this. From the judge initially who could have forced the review of the prosecutor's file so that the withholding wouldn't have happened in the first place, to uh, the trial prosecutors going along with this withholding to the trial judge again once they learned about the, this withholding not correcting this wrong to the indiana appellate courts who could have stopped this to the indiana supreme court who could have stopped this the federal habeas corpus judge could have stopped this we shouldn't have to rely on the second highest court in in, in the land a federal court to right these wrongs. Uh, these should be corrected immediately in the lower courts, but they're not, unfortunately. And in Indiana, not only in Walter's case, but in, in, in other Indiana cases, time and again, these wrongs are not corrected uh, in a timely manner. The people who come across these wrongful convictions need to step up and not just allow it to happen. And they need to do it quickly to make sure it gets done in a timely manner, not 16 years later. I do appreciate y'all giving me the opportunity. Man. I, I feel that in no amount of money they, they give me, no amount of money they gave me, no amount of money they give me from here on out, it's going to take back all of the years I miss my kid's life. And that's the biggest thing for me in my kid's life. Uh, anything they do for me now is going to be for my grandbabies, securing their futures, you know what I mean? Make sure they got the right accounts set up, putting insurances on us if something happened. Make sure I got insurance, you know? Make sure my family don't have to be out there with a bucket on the corner trying to bury me, if, you know, when I, when I pass. Not when I, if I pass, I'm going to pass someday. But when I do, to make sure they ain't got to struggle and 
and try to go with GoFundMe. I done went through all this in that box in there to get out and die and can't be buried out here. You know what I mean? I know what it is to appreciate life. I wake up appreciating life. I wake up appreciating my freedom. I really do. I wake up appreciating everything about my freedom. Man, I'm free. I'm still free. I don't care if I ain't got Right now, I ain't got a dime in my pocket. I am free. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.